This is St. Peter's Sunday Morning Bible Group, and I'm Pastor Adam. Each week, we record our teaching time to aid you in your discipleship and to help create a resilient faith that is able to respond to the changing landscape of culture and life with the fullness of grace and truth. And hey, if you happen to live in the Columbus area, we would love to see you on a Sunday morning. To plan your visit, head over to our website at stpeterscolumbus.org. That's stpeterscolumbus.org. Here is this week's Sunday Morning Bible Group. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks, Lord, uh, for the work of Clayton. Um, We give you thanks for the gifts, skills, abilities, talents that you have given him. Uh, Lord, as he serves our community, um, we pray, Lord, uh, that you would, number one, that you would keep him safe. Um, that you would bless his, his efforts, um, that his line of work and his vocation um, would lead others uh, to hope, um, and the hope that we all have in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We ask this all in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Um, all right, so um, Clayton's going to come, come up, kind of, uh, we'll go back and forth a little bit, talk about what his, what a life, what a day in the life of um, him looks, looks like. Um, and then at the end, with the remaining time, we'll kind of dig through the rest of, or as much as we get, 1 Corinthians 15. If you were here for the first time, we kind of started with that, but we didn't have enough time, so we'll kind of continue to walk through that. Um, but without further ado, somebody that you guys have no idea who he is, Mr. Clayton Nolting. Come on up, my guy. Let's give him a round of applause. Good morning. Good morning. All right. My name is Clayton Nolting. I am your Bartholomew County Coroner. I am in the fourth year of my second term. If you didn't know, the Coroner's Office is a term-limited office, and so I will be done after this year, and someone else gets to do this. So um, I have actually started doing this. I've been doing it since 2008, uh, whether in at... Bartholomew County Coroner's Office, I did two and a half years up in Marion County while I was in grad school, working on my master's at Purdue, and then I was elected in 2016. Do you so, want this? Do you know sure. where your slides are? Okay. My background, born and raised in Bartholomew County, went to St. Peter's, then I went to Columbus East High School. Once I graduated there, I went to Purdue University. I did my undergraduate and master's there. My master's was in forensic entomology. I studied under Dr. Ralph Williams and Dr. Neil Haskell out of Rensselaer. My research was based on how gunshot trauma affects decomposition. So at Purdue, we weren't allowed to use human bodies for decomposition research. That's at the University of Tennessee. Um, So I used pigs. Pigs are the closest human analog to use for decomposition research. And so basically what I did was I shot dead pigs and see how they decomposed with different calibers of weapons. Yes, sir. How does, but, uh, what did you find? <laughs> what was your finding? Um, so that's a whole nother like two hour lecture I could get into. Um, but long story short, basically as you would think, the larger the hole, um, the larger the wound channel, which then creates, um, I guess you could say, trying to keep it PG, for all the fluids to leak out of the body and dry out, which then created another feeding site for the maggots. And so more maggots, maggots and flies are cold blooded, and so they cannot control their own temperature. So the warmer the temperature and the more maggots, the faster the body decomposes. So a 12 gauge uh, created the largest hole and then the maggots decomposed, or excuse me, maggots consumed the tissue much faster. 
In my spare time, what little I have, I go down to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, their Forensic Anthropology Research Center. It's one of the few facilities in the world that use human cadavers for decomposition research. So I've been teaching down there since 2006, um, and I go down there anywhere between two and three times a year. My other job is I work at the Columbus Police Department. I have been there for 12 years. Um, I am a second shift sergeant, and I am also on the SWAT team. I am one of the senior snipers for the SWAT team, and I'm also a firearms instructor, close quarters combat instructor, and then I work on all the guns, all the officers break. <laughs> oh. If you have questions, feel free to holler them out. So why do I do this? I always get this question, why? Why do you want to deal with dead bodies? Um, I actually, a long time ago, thought about being a doctor, but then I have a hard time interacting with the living. So <laughs> I, tend to, I tend to speak what's on my mind, and sometimes that offends people. And so uh, I realized how much education would have to go into becoming a board-certified forensic pathologist, and school wasn't really my thing. So. Um, I did my master's, and then I started getting involved with uh, Larry Fisher at the Bartholomew County Coroner's Office and doing cases for him. I also do it because we speak for those who can no longer speak for themselves. And what I mean by that is it is our job, it is my job as the coroner to find out what happened um, when someone passes away. So for example, tomorrow I have three autopsies, excuse me, two autopsies scheduled in the morning, and then this is what my day looks like. Um, so this is what I do. From, I get up at six, I go work out at the gym, and then I take my kids to school. Since I work second shift at the police department, I don't go on until 2.30 in the afternoon. So I spend all morning drinking coffee, doing paperwork, um, house chores, keeps my wife happy. Mostly mine, my house chores is doing laundry and cleaning the floors. I also check out reports, so I have six deputies that work for me. So when I'm working at the police department, I have someone covering the coroner's office. So. I have uh, six deputies that work for me and an office manager, and he takes care of all the paperwork, dealing with attorneys and subpoenas and all that kind of stuff. I attend autopsies. I sign death certificates. That's one of the jobs of the coroner's office is to sign death certificates uh, once we get the autopsy reports back. And then <clears throat> I then generally meet with the next of kin. So I talk to them. I have an office down at the government office building. They're at 3rd and Franklin. Yes. Um, and then. I deal with that and then also check out all of my deputies' reports, sign off on them, make sure they've been approved, and all that stuff gets submitted to the Indiana State Department of Health for record-keeping purposes. Uh, occasionally, when I have time, uh, I go to jiu-jitsu. Uh, my son and I both do jiu-jitsu at Mike Brown's gym there at 14th and Grand. And at any point in time of the day, I can be called out. So what happens is usually my phone will vibrate, I'll get a page, and it says 911. And it's a paging system from our EOC, our dispatch, and it says possible 10-0, which is the police code uh, for a dead body at this location. And then I'll have some CAD notes, uh, some dispatch notes in there, and kind of tells me where it is, the nearest cross street, and what's going on. Shortly after that, I'll probably get a call from a patrol sergeant who's working, or I'll get a call from a detective if a detective has been assigned. As we all know, the country is currently in the grips of an opioid uh, epidemic and so a lot of my cases are actually overdoses so a lot of times I have to wait for the narcotics team to get through there do their search warrants pick up all the evidence and then I come and start my investigation yes ma'am so do you actually do the autopsy 
No. I am not a forensic pathologist. My office chooses to use, um, I refer to her as a traveling knife. Um, she is a board certified forensic pathologist and she travels all over the state. She owns a company called Saguaro Forensic Consulting. She's based out of Fishers and basically one day she's north of 40 and the next day she's south of 40. So I get an autopsy if I need it at least it'll be one day out. So uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty good. She's board certified and um, she has an autopsy tech and they travel and then I get reports in anywhere between four to six weeks uh, depending on toxicology. So every death does not require an autopsy. That's an excellent question. So this right here is the legal jargon uh, for what constitutes a coroner call. I'm not gonna read this all out loud. If you guys wanna skim it, you can. So my job um, is if anyone dies in a suspicious, unusual, or unnatural manner, has been found dead, I basically have to notify law enforcement. However, that's not usually how it works. Usually it's law enforcement notifying me. Um, so then what happens is I get called out to the scene. I speak with family, uh, get photographs, do scene diagrams, uh, and then start the process of if a, if a potential autopsy is necessary. We always do toxicology, and also we generally do, if there's injury involved, we'll do x-rays as well. Radiology never likes a phone call from the morgue, so they usually get, they're usually like, yes, Clayton, what do you need? <laughs> oh. My faith in death. Um, I take solace in that the person's soul is no longer in their body. That shell is now evidence. It may seem like a cruel or crass way to think about it, but we all have souls. Upon death, that soul leaves the body, and I think of it now as evidence. Uh, and possibly it could be a crime, it could be just an accident, it could be a natural death. That's how I process it. That's the easiest way for me to do it. I haven't lost my mind yet. So. My faith drives me to speak for those who don't speak for themselves. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. So, as always, bodies are treated with respect uh, during investigation, transportation, and autopsy. Um, I few of you might actually know. I'm actually getting a new vehicle. Uh, the coroner's office has always provided the vehicle for the county. Uh, so my vehicle has been a Chevy Suburban, and Suburban's getting old, so the county uh, decided to buy me a new vehicle. So it's actually, it will be finished March 8th, March 8th, and will be in service. It'll basically be a fully kitted out ambulance is what it'll look like. Uh, and so that's what the coroner's office will be able to respond with, have crime scene investigation, body bags, cameras, have a tablet in it and everything. So uh, bring the coroner's office into the 21st century. Yes. Yep. Well, I bought, I bought a Chevy Suburban strictly for that. Uh, my wife absolutely refuses to allow the kids to ride in that vehicle. Um, so uh, my police car is, since I'm a sergeant, I don't have a cage in my car, so my kids don't have to ride in a cage. Um, so they get to ride in the back of daddy's police car. So uh, then my wife has a vehicle as well. Yes, sir. Do you guys ever um, have a, like if you ever arrived on scene, is there ever a conflict of interest depending on who that person is that you have to back up. Does that make sense? Like uh, so the conflict of interest for me, it's uh, Indiana Code 34-17-2-6, I believe. And it states conflict of interest. Um, it's the criminal code for that. And it states that if a coroner decides it's a conflict of interest, then he would contact a neighboring county coroner to come do the investigation. So on the SWAT team, I've been involved in police action shootings. And so 
being the coroner, I have to contact the neighboring county coroner, and they have to come out and they do the investigation, and then they charge my office for everything. And so my office is on the hook for the bill for all that kind of stuff. How about if, if uh, God forbid, some, you'd have to respond to a family member or somebody, uh, would you be able to serve in your capacity? No, I'd probably step aside. Is that a law? Or is that, a that is a law. It's, it, the law states that it's up to me to determine if it's a conflict of interest. And so my office manager and I have conversations frequently about that. Uh, about what, what will happen when undoubtedly that day comes and how we're going to proceed from there. Um, probably he would handle it. My office manager, Jay Frederick, if anyone's familiar with him, he works just retired from the police department. He's now the prosecutor's investigator uh, for the prosecutor's office. And so he would probably handle that for me if it was my family and uh, the same for him. Good question, Dan. Thank you. So autopsies. This is exactly uh, who has to perform an autopsy for it to be legal. When acting under the section, if the coroner deems an autopsy necessary, contact a board-certified forensic pathologist. And then there's some subsections um, under there as well. And what that is is basically the autopsy is for us to find out uh, basically what happened. And so tomorrow, a brief rundown of what is my autopsies are. One is a possible drug overdose, and the other one is a possible medical misadventure, uh, meaning something happened uh, during a medical procedure and the individual died. And so it's my office's job to find out exactly what happened. And so I get all the medical documents, all the OR paperwork, all the medical records, x-rays, all that kind of stuff, and hand that all over to my pathologist. And then she and her team reviews it. Is that because like, the family has said, we want to know what happened? Or is that because you need to know what happened for medical reasons? Or is that just um, what someone say? We want to know, or, oh, they're dead, sorry. Like, do you ever get that, and it's like, well... So, like, do I ever get pushback on autopsies? Right. Or, or, like, what's the premises of doing the autopsy? Is it because someone has requested it, or because you actually have to know, like, the person that died in the OR, because, like, is that something that you have to do um, to make sure... Yes, that's my, that's my choice. Um, if someone... So the OR issues are different because... Um, technically, if someone dies under the care of a doctor, the doctor can sign that death certificate, like in the ICU. I got three calls from the ICU last night. Um, so basically, if they die under the care of a doctor, one was an elderly female with congestive heart failure, coronary artery disease, and uterine cancer, all different sorts of stuff. I, passed, I let the doctor sign that death certificate. Now, the OR case um, actually came from another hospital. They came to our hospital, uh, sorry, Columbus's hospital, and then coded uh, in the ER. And so then they call me and say, hey, this is what happened. This is the medical procedure they did. Not really sure why they did that. Can you come check it out? So then I come in, I gather all the paperwork and that kind of stuff. And then if it's medical misadventure, then, or a medical accident, something like that, then it's my job to find out exactly what happened. Um, since then, I've gotten three calls from attorneys already. So between Columbus's attorneys and the other hospital's attorneys, wanting to make sure everybody's CYA. Uh, Columbus Regional Health has uh, a morgue, and one of the only good things that came out of the pandemic was we went from being able to store only four bodies to 16. Uh, so we put in a rack system, and then we have a pneumatic lift that we can put uh, bodies in there. So if you are on the, it would be the east side of the hospital, basically where they deliver all the oxygen. There's a huge oxygen silo, uh, and I'm down in a loading ramp. They keep me hidden pretty well, so <laughs> for good reason. Um, and then funeral homes come and go from there as well. Is there a time frame? 
for when an autopsy has to be completed. No. However, there is a time frame from when my investigation is completed to the time I have to file a death certificate with Indiana State Department of Health. I have four, 72 hours uh, once my investigation is complete to then certify that death and get a death certificate in the digital system. Generally, the sooner the better. You said that um, everybody was CYA. Cover your backside. Yes. Should have asked. My bad. <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. So, um, today's sermon uh, is, is on the three instances when Jesus brought somebody back from the dead, mm -hmm. and so um, the Lazarus uh, resurrection, whatever term you want to use, he was dead for several days, right? Because they four days. So, so in your in your experience. Can you explain how that impacts your faith, knowing what you know, like just that God can do anything? I, it's, I mean, like a body that sits there for four days. What, what's, it what, like? what's it look like? What's it, what's it <laughs> um, so decomposition is based largely on temperature. Um, so I'm guessing it's probably an arid climate. That's safe to say, probably rather warm. Um, and so depending if he was in a sealed tomb or not, there would be different things. So decomposition starts the moment you die. Uh, what happens is you start to see cell breakdown. It's called hemolysis. Um, and what happens is as the cells and tissue start to break down, first you have signs of decomposition besides rigor mortis. Rigor mortis is the stiffening of joints. Um, you'll start to see a green discoloration in the abdomen. Uh, that's generally what happens. Um, and then you go into the bloat stages and then you go what's called active decay um, where you see insects uh, starting to feed. I'm guessing after four days, uh, there would definitely be uh, some active uh, insect feeding. Um, so it depends on how Jesus brought him back. I'm hoping he brought him back to how he looked, not how he was currently at that stage, because that would be extremely traumatic. Um, I'm guessing he did. And he probably had the forethought to be like, you probably shouldn't bring him out looking like that. So... Um, Yes, that would be definitely, especially like in, in August and September, especially in the really hot months around here, um, it, goes, it goes south pretty quick. So it's a good question. Uh, anything else? Yes, sir. I would say probably the extent of their knowledge would be to see if the person is still breathing. Um, so I'm going to go over the wounds of Jesus and kind of an autopsy here. And that's actually a good question. And it would be pretty much unsurvivable. I kind of want to jump straight to it, but I want to answer these questions. Um, remind me in a minute. I'll come back to it. I'm going to finish this part. Uh, so autopsies, a lot of times we have families that are extremely um, adamant against autopsies. Uh, there are some religions where a body has to be in the ground within so many hours uh, post-mortem. And so I have to work within those confines to honor those religious beliefs. Uh, generally people, a lot of times I'll have people come up and just scream and yell in my face, get in my face. Uh, generally the law enforcement on duty will step in and kind of get in between us. 
And, but usually, a couple years later, I get phone calls to say, thank you for what you did. I understand I was in going through the different stages of grief at that point in time, didn't know what I was doing or what I was saying, so I appreciate what you do. It also gives us concrete answers by a board-certified medical professional. Without an autopsy, I have to rely on medical records, EMS run sheets, and witness statements. Like I said, each person um, processes grief differently. Autopsy reports and toxicology are always sent to the family, and then also I go over those things. There's a lot of medical jargon in there uh, that people won't understand, and so I talk them through that. And I'm gonna go through, actually, there's gonna be some medical jargon and some of this coming up when I talk about the uh, autopsy on Jesus if we were to perform one on him today. Surviving loss, our goal is to get answers. Uh, even though people sometimes don't like the method in which we go to get our answers, a lot of people um, don't understand what consists of an autopsy. And so basically, I'll run through it real quick. What happens in an autopsy is you get it's called a classic Y incision. It starts from the shoulder blades, basically runs uh, to the chest, down to the navel. They open up the body. They then remove the rib cage. Um, and my pathologist, she has done, since I've worked with her, close to 9,000 autopsies. So her and her technician has been with her since the beginning. It, it's, it, they're very methodical. They go through everything. Heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, take out the, check out all the other parts, make sure everything's in there, weigh everything. The doctor will then, uh, Dr. Watkins will then uh, dissect things, keep a couple things for histology purposes to check for cancerous tumors, anything like that. And then I keep that stuff. And then once everything's done, they do open the head, remove the brain. Um, if it's a homicide, then we have uh, CSIs. We have technicians collecting evidence, doing fingernail scrapings, removing uh, fingernail clippings, and photographs, 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 photographs. Um, we also have a camera in our morgue that we can record uh, the autopsy as well. And that's saved and then usually uh, uploaded to the county's encrypted servers and all that good stuff. Suicides are difficult to deal with um, because a lot of people with religious beliefs um, think that if you commit suicide, you're not going to heaven. So people um, are in a different stage of grief uh, when dealing with suicides, and it's very difficult. Um, overdoses are extremely difficult because we're working hand-in-hand -hand with the prosecutor's office, our CSIs, uh, detectives, our JNET, Joint Narcotics Enforcement Team, and so it's a huge collaboration um, that work together. And then SUDI is extremely difficult. Sudden, unexplained infant death investigations. So I think it was 2018 or 2019, Bartholomew County um, unfortunately led the state in SUDI in unexplained infant deaths. Most, if you guys did not know, most of our deaths re, uh, excuse me, are a result of unsafe sleeping conditions. So I'm a safe sleep ambassador, the ABCs of safe sleep, alone on their back and in the crib. And all of the ones um, that we have dealt with, say for a couple, have been as a result of unsafe sleeping conditions. And so for me, that's the hardest thing to process is like, CRH does a wonderful job with getting information out there about safe sleep. Because new moms have a hard time. They want like, oh, I'll just feed baby and I'll hold him in my arms and we'll fall asleep. She falls asleep, wakes up, and the baby's wedged into a position and no longer breathing. If you didn't know, just the weight of your hand, so if I put my hand on Dano here, just that weight of my palm on a newborn's chest is enough to stop them from breathing. So, in my time doing this, 47 infant deaths, I keep track of that, I don't know why, but um, almost all of them have been due to unsafe sleep. So, onto this part. 
uh, the autopsy on Jesus' body. The first thing we would do, um, obviously, if we did it today, it would be photograph all the wounds. Um, we would get measurements with and without a scale or ruler. Uh, we examine the five main wounds associated with the crucifixion, two on the hands, two on the feet, and the piercing wound. So if those of you who, um, there is a book, I think it's called The Science of the Crucifixion, or an, it was written by a medical doctor, I can't remember the exact name of it, it's on Amazon, uh, and goes through all of this, goes through everything, and medically, um, it, it sounds probably the wor absolute worst way to die. Um, and then check for shoulder and elbow dislocation. We can do that through either manual, physically moving the body, or also through uh, x-rays. Check the shoulder and elbow dislocation due to being hoisted and the body weight being supported uh, with the nails through the wrist and the hand. Check for hypovolemic shock. Hypovolemic shock is shock due to loss of blood from flogging and the crown of thorns. Can be seen as organ failure. Organs, once they go into organ failure, have a different look to them. Uh, my pathologist would explain it as basically, like if you're going into massive organ failure, the organs take on a different look, and you actually see what's called petechiae, uh, little blood burst vessels uh, on the organs, and you would see that um, in the autopsy. Pre-mortem, you would see stroke-like symptoms uh, as far as organ failure. Check for a... I've practiced this three or four times before I came in here. Uh, <laughs> Hematohydrosis is the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands. And what happens is during extreme stress and anxiety, they start to break down. Blood is then released from the vessels mixed with sweat. Therefore, it appears the body is sweating blood. So my soul is deeply graved to the point of death. Um, high levels of carbonic acid due to buildup uh, from slow suffocation from being hung on the cross, hanged on the cross. And basically as what happens is as the weight, as the weight of the body, of the arms outstretched, he would slowly start to lose power and you lose the ability, the muscle strength to push himself up to get a breath. And basically his breath would become shallower and shallower and shallower and shallower until basically the high levels of carbonic acid would build up and we could test for that um, in toxicology. Check to see if the heart and lungs were pierced. The Bible verse, instead one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bring a sudden flow of blood and water, John 19, 34. So if you read this, the decreased oxygen due to difficulty in exhaling causes damages to the tissues and capillaries, basically begin leaking watery fluid into the tissues. The result is myocardial, excuse me, pleural effusion and pericardial effusion, basically where water builds up around the linings of the organs. And so you get the sudden flow of blood and water. So when he was pierced in the side, if it went up there, it would, might actually appear as though blood and water were mixed together in the wound. So a piercing wound, those of you who have never seen a stabbing or a piercing wound or an impalement, um, they obviously bleed a lot. And as long as the body is pumping blood, it will continue to pump that blood out until basically, for lack of a better term, your engine's out of oil and has pumped everything out. Um, so you would actually see that. So due to the extreme stress and pressure of being hanged on the cross, you would actually, good chance that could actually happen. Also what we would check for is obviously no broken bones because we saw um, in the Bible it says he would suffer no broken bones. So you would see that. You would also check for what I would is if you look at the scalp, the ring, where the crown of thorns was basically pounded into his head. You also can't forget the wounds from the flogging. 
flogging. Uh, basically, it's a short whip that has leather straps on it. A lot of times it had pieces of metal or bone in it. And what it would basically do is tear chunks of flesh from Jesus' back. That would cause massive amounts of blood loss. And then they covered him with a robe. And shortly before they hanged him or crucified him, they ripped that robe off. So as soon as that blood had a chance to clot and stick to that robe, they ripped it off and the blood would start flowing again, causing even more blood loss. So the hypovolemic shock, the uh, shock due to blood loss, um, would be very apparent and massive organ system failure. So that's the number one. Also, for those of you who don't know, that's the number one killer of cops. When cops get shot uh, is the hypovolemic shock. We get shot, take a round. If we don't get a dressing on it or get the wound packed, um, we will die due to that. Not so much the blood loss, but the shock result um, of a blood loss. If that was graphic, I apologize. Um, but this is just part of, this is my daily routine, seeing things like this. So sometimes things come out of my mouth that may seem a little offensive and I apologize. Yes, ma'am. What about cremation? So how cremation works is once the autopsy is completed, if they're an organ donor, um, then the organ donor network, they deal, they do all that stuff. Uh, they take what they need. Um, and then once the body has been generally, if you're going to be cremated, they will do one of two things. They won't embalm you or they'll do embalming for showing only, which is generally from the waist up. Um, and so the embalming process is if, I don't see any funeral directors in here, but if you think I'm weird, you should hang out with some funeral directors. So I love Rory Glick to death, but I mean, they're different. So, um, but once that's been embalmed, um, then what they'll do is um, they'll put the place of body in the cremator uh, we have one at 9th and Pearl, and then uh, Barks Weaver and Glick has theirs out on 46. So what that is, then basically it's a gas-powered furnace uh, that takes, depending on the size of the body, anywhere between three and six hours uh, to cremate. Once that's done, the machine cools down, take the body out, pull right. There's only bones and teeth left generally, and then it's ground into a powder and then placed into an urn. So all of our Pre-mortem post has to be done before that. Otherwise, we have nothing left to work with. Good question. Yes, sir. So the question was how my faith affects me working with the dead. Yeah. So for me. Um, like acts of cruelty and stuff like that, I do that. I probably process grief a lot differently than most people due to the fact that they're grief and trauma differently than everybody else in this room because I see it on a day-to-day -day basis. How I process it is that there's evil in this world and for lack of a better term, my job is to find out what happened to that person no matter how gruesome or how terrible it is. And my job is to get justice for that person or at a minimum, give the family answers. And so I know that that soul is no longer inside that body. And so I have to be able to answer to those families and to the justice system and give them the best knowledge and best information that I can with what I have at my disposal. So for me, my faith plays a huge role in that, in that it is, and like I said, it's my job to deal with that trauma and to process it. And how I process it is I just know that I look at that body as a piece of evidence. So that's the, that's, how, that's the best way for me to do it without losing my mind and having to sit on a shrink's couch for hours at a time. 
Uh, that's how I deal with it. So the question was, uh, what is a percentage of deaths in our county that are overdoses? My office uses Google Sheets. And so all the deputies can get in there and log all the information. So right now we have three confirmed overdoses and two pending toxicology results. Um, last year we totaled out the year with 25 and the year before that we had 39, which was the highest we've ever had. Um, each overdose we always do an autopsy on because fortunately our prosecutor's office, um, our new prosecutor, Lindsay Holden K. Uh, there was recently, a couple years ago, placed into law. It's called uh, dealing resulting in death. So what happens is um, we have the pusher, the guy who's pushing the drugs. Every time somebody buys drugs, it's usually at a text message. Hey, I want some boy. I want some dragon. Or I want some white. It's, they're all street names for it. And they text this particular individual, and we have that number saved. So as soon as officers go into a scene that's possibly an overdose, they immediately collect the phone. It's evidence. We collect it, they put it on airplane mode, and then it goes to um, our cell phone tech. What happens is that gets downloaded, and then we can find that. We can find out who that phone belongs to, and then we can actually track that person down and arrest them. And if, but generally, the last three that we've dealt with, the person's come off of it through interrogation. Um, not, we don't call it interrogation, interviewing. Um, so <laughs> interrogation has a different connotation to it nowadays. So. Um, then that is actually a level one felony, which is the highest felony um, that you can get. And so we've successfully, I haven't, the prosecutor's office um, has successfully prosecuted two with I think two or three more um, on the table. So we've actually seen a decline in overdoses. And so far this year, we are well behind, I burned knock on wood, De well behind our number of overdoses from the last two years. So we're seeing a decline in it. Um, we used to be able to, um, but now it's uh, readily available over the counter. ASAP hub at like 13th and Cottage, the old Arvin's building. Um, they give it out free. They load their box up every day, and by the end of the day, it's usually empty. Um, people come and get free Narcan from it. Um, generally, when we get on scenes of overdoses, we see packages of Narcan already been used. Um, as when I'm, I'm talking as a law enforcement, I'm switching to... Uh, the police response. When we get there, there's generally um, one of the Narcans has already been pushed into the nose. Um, and so a lot of times with that availability, that has decreased our overdoses as well because Narcan's much more readily available. All of our fentanyl is cartel fentanyl. It comes across the southern border. Um, the precursors are made in labs in China and then basically shipped in containers uh, to the cartels. And then the cartel processes it or synthesizes it into fentanyl. Fentanyl is anywhere between 50 to 100 times more potent than a unit of morphine. And we don't see heroin in toxicology anymore. Because heroin is a natural product of the poppy plant, so you have to harvest it, you have to process it, you then have to package it and ship it, where fentanyl can just be sent to basically a super lab um, that the cartels own, and they can process it and turn it into fentanyl much cheaper then actually processing and uh, distilling heroin. Yes, ma'am. The body, no. However, a lot of times they will still have uh, the bindles, their little tiny aluminum foil packets. We've had several officers exposed in the past, um, and we have to take them directly to the emergency room. What happened was this was a, uh, the question was, are fentanyl overdoses, the bodies themselves, a danger to us? No, it's generally what the bodies have in their pockets. And they generally still have some residual fentanyl or they could have more fentanyl 
um, in their pockets wrapped up in little aluminum uh, foil bindles, we call them. And a couple years ago, we had an officer exposed what it was. It was actually an entire cake of fentanyl put into a uh, blush or the thing it opens up, a makeup compact, and it was pure fentanyl in there. And the officer accidentally dropped it, and it cracked and aerosolized. And the officer panicked and <gasps> real quick, and so we had to take him to the hospital. So we had to sanitize his clothes. We had to sanitize the back of his car, everything. Um, so the Indiana State Police has a, a decon unit that comes and basically destroys the inside of a squad car. So it never looks the same again. But uh, so yes, it is, a, it is a danger. The other danger is getting stuck with dirty needles or needles that are still loaded. Uh, so that is, we've had, I think it's been about five or six years since an officer's been stuck with a needle. Um, but generally, the uh, people who have the needles on them, they usually point the tips down and they'll actually bend the needle over so it doesn't stick them and they'll stick it in their pocket. So we can actually feel the barrel of the syringe before we uh, go sticking our fingers in there. I hope you are enjoying this week's Sunday Morning Bible Group. For more information, you can head over to stpeterscolumbus.org. There, you will find more faith content and you can support this ministry. And don't forget, if you are looking for that local church and you live in Columbus, we would love to see you on a Sunday morning. Now, back to the Sunday Morning Bible Group. I've always been a little bit of a nerd. I'm not afraid to admit that. Um, and I've always been interested in bugs, insects. Uh, and I had the opportunity at Purdue. I went through their undergraduate forensics course. Uh, went all the way up through there. Got a position as a teaching assistant. And then I had the um, offer an opportunity to do a master's degree uh, with forensics and bugs. So it was like combining two of my nerd loves together and was able to do that. And that's how I did my master's. So it's always something I've been interested in. And I was able to tie it all together and kind of turn it into somewhat of a career. If someone dies in their home and let's say we just had one a couple weeks ago, um, their caseworker from, I can't remember the, Centerstone uh, called for a welfare check on the individual. Said, hey, we haven't seen so-and-so in a couple days. Would you mind running by his house? So myself and a couple of my guys uh, that I work with, we walked up to the apartment and um, I was going around. It would have been the west side of the apartment. And all of a sudden, I hear one of my guys go, Sarge, get over here. We came over and looked in the window, and he was down on the floor. Um, he had multiple health issues. Um, the home was secure. Um, he had past suicidal ideations, and his past suicide attempts had been through um, medical overdose, basically taking, saving all of his pills for a week at a time and then taking them all at once. And so with all that information we had, we didn't do an autopsy. We just did toxicology. Since the home was secure and his keys were accounted for, his vehicle was accounted for, he had literally had a, full, a binder full of all of his medical um, concerns and issues on the table that it looked like he'd been going through. It looked like he just had passed away. So we don't have uh, his toxicology back, so it could have been uh, an overdose, a suicide by overdose. However, uh, suicides, only 30% of people who commit suicide leave a note. And that's from studies conducted of people who've attempted suicide and survived. So really only one in three people who commit suicide leave a note. So a and for me, so this is a question I get asked all the time is, how do you know all these overdoses aren't suicides? We don't. Unless we have past attempts, 
unless we have medical documentation saying this person has been emergency detained. Um, so the state of Indiana allows law enforcement to place a 72-hour hold on people who are gravely disabled, who have attempted suicide, who have expressed attempts at suicide. We can put emergency detainment on them, take them to the hospital, and they are not released until they are seen by a psychiatric team, either through the hospital or through Centerstone. So my pathologist, um, she just raised her prices from $1,500 to $2,250 um, for, for each post. Uh, sorry, a post is a post-mortem examination. We just shorten it and call it a post. Um, and so um, I had to ask the county council for a lot more money last year because all that comes out of my budget. Um, and last year, now thinking about it, I should have become a pathologist because she did roughly uh, 3,000 autopsies last year. Her and three other pathologists that work for her. So she sarcastically said the Bartholomew County Coroner's Office paid for her new boat at our house. So... We just did, we have a John Doe, we call him Papaw. Um, it happened in 1999, January, I think it was February 1st of 1999. Columbus Police Department was dispatched to a mail laying along the side of State Road 46. If you all can remember back to 1999, not a lot on State Road 46 back then. Um, they went out there, found a male um, deceased with a through and through gunshot wound to the head, and he had two guns on him, one in his pocket and one in his hand. Um, no identification. He was wearing a tracksuit. Um, so the coroner's office is obligated. If we cannot find next to kin, we have to put an ad in the paper. Uh, we have to, we put it out through um, all of the coroner's associations throughout the country, trying to get information on this individual, find out who he was. They buried him. So we cannot cremate unidentified remains. They have to be buried. So there's a section at Garland Brook, uh, the pauper section where they are buried. This last year, uh, we basically got grant funding to exhume this individual and do DNA testing. So we did a grant funding, we exhumed the body, we had to have a court order, the judge had to sign it, we had to have the funeral home come and witness it, the guys at Garlandbrook exhumed the body, and then there are certain body parts we have to take and we send off to this lab. So this lab does it through grant funding, um, and so this body has been identified since 99, and so far we've gotten two hits um, as far as possible DNA matches. Uh, so we are hoping to finally identify Papal so we can get him back to his family um, or as per whatever their wishes are. And so, yeah, that's what uh, we have to do with unidentified remains. We did do an autopsy on him. I didn't. Larry Fisher did uh, back in the day. And so it appeared to be a suicide. However, um, a lot of the detectives and a lot of the narcotics detectives seemed to think um, it was a possible gang hit or a mafia hit uh, that he was in just executed and dropped off the side of the road. So we're still investigating that uh, from as a cold case. So yes, even Bartholomew County does have cold cases. So generally if it's, if it's internal trauma, there's an external indicator. Uh, so like gunshot trauma, you'll obviously have an entrance wound, may not have an exit wound. Um, a lot of times we'll basically track those wound marks, uh, see the trajectory, see what the path of the bullet. We also x-ray it. Um, so that way we can find all the metal fragments. Uh, generally, if you have um, a hollow point or a full metal jacket, a soft nose around the cop, basically a copper jacketed lead round will basically, uh, for lack of a better term, deflagrate. It'll turn into a thousand tiny pieces of shrapnel um, inside the body. Um, we have to collect that. We have to collect everything we can to the best of our ability and then save that as evidence. 
Um, so as far as those markers, once we find those wounds, then we basically we identify them, we catalog them on a diagram, our pathologist does, and then we photograph them and make notes. Um, if it's something like natural, like what people have referred to as the Widowmaker, has everybody heard of the Widowmaker heart attack? It's the left anterior descending um, in the heart, and if that's blocked, it's basically um, unsurvivable. And, or if it's a PE, a pulmonary embolism, someone throws a clot in their lungs, um, they can actually remove the clot. The pathologist, she will actually remove the, the entire blockage um, and document that. If it's a natural case like that, when we find a cause of death like that, then we'll stop there. We'll finish the chest cavity, abdominal cavity, and then we won't mess with the head. So uh, then we'll just put everything back inside, stitch the body up, and send them off to the funeral home. Uh, no, we don't see an increase in that. Most of our suicides are by firearm. Uh, we, we do see that quite a bit. Um, however, the most, when I talk about wounds, the gunshot wounds are most easily for people to imagine in their head. Uh, and so I talk about wounds like it happens more frequently, but it really doesn't. Most of our suicides are by uh, gunshot trauma. We have the occasional hanging, um, but most of those uh, are few and far between. Should probably knock on wood again. All right, can we give Clayton a big old thank you? Round of applause, please. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Um, uh, I want to go back to one of your slides here. Hold on. Um, um, there it is. Um, so John 19, 34. Um, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Um, there's a scientific side to it, um, which I'm terrible at, uh, but there's a theological side to this too, which I think is really cool, um, is that at, at Jesus's crucifixion, um, uh, John writes his gospel from a theological lens. He's, he's driving points home, right? Light and dark, big themes in the gospel of John. Um, Jesus says, you know, the great I, I am statements in, in the Gospel of John. Uh, here, we see flowing from the body of Jesus the two sacraments that he gives us, right? His blood and his body, and then water, baptism, flowing out of the side of, of, of Jesus. Um, and, and that, for us, is, um, I'm sure there's a very medical uh, uh, reason for that, a la all that there, um, but also for us as followers of Jesus, that's where the sacraments come out of. The sacraments come out of the body of, of, of Christ, and that's what unites us with his body, uh, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Um, so even, even on the cross, um, Jesus is, is still working um, for us and for our salvation, um, which is really, really cool. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks. Uh, we give you thanks for Clayton, Lord, uh, for the faith that you have given him, number one, we give you thanks. Uh, we give you thanks, Lord, that uh, his trust, his hope, his security is in your life, your death, and your resurrection. Um, and as he deals with death each and every day, Lord, we know that, um, that death is, is hard, uh, that death separates. Um, so we pray, Lord, uh, that you keep his eyes fixed upon you, um, that you keep his, his eyes and his uh, his uh, nose in the word, Lord, um, that, that through, through it uh, he may bring um, answers, answers to people and families that desperately need it. Um, we give you thanks, Lord, for his vocation um, and for the years of service that he has had to our community um, and the years of service that he has had to us here at St. Peter's. 
Um, we ask, Heavenly Father, that you bless us through this rest of this, this day. If we've already gone to worship, if we're going to worship, Lord, um, we give you thanks for your sacraments that, f- that flowed from your side that day on Golgotha. We ask this all in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Hey, I hope that you enjoyed this Sunday morning Bible group. If you did, be sure to share it and subscribe so we can get you more faith content when it's available. And I want to give a shout out to all people who call St. Peter's home. It is through you that we are able to connect people to Jesus for the first time and keep people connected for a lifetime. We hope to see you next time.